Well, good morning, everybody. If we haven't met before, my name's Rob Jacobson. I'm so glad to be here today. I'm usually glad to be here today, but today I'm especially glad to be here. And I think, well, it has nothing to do with this, actually, but the holiday movie season is totally upon us. Have you realized this? The, with the James Bond movie coming out, and soon the last Hunger Games coming out, and then the epic Star Wars coming out. I know there's some haters out there, but, you know, this is the, this is the season where the big blockbusters come out. And I, it's fi- I find it interesting... Like, with the James Bond movie, because there's been, what, 50 of them, or 60, or 100? Like, what makes James Bond so fascinating? Why do people continue to flock to these movies, even after the main character changes over and over, and the stories seem to remain kind of the same over and over? Why do we go to these movies? Cool cars. Explosions. Gadgets. Oh, yeah, there's... There's a little bit of, like, adrenaline rush, right? Like, could I do that? I, never mind, I'm not going to go there. But I might have wanted to sketch my own bat cave. In fact, I did sketch my own bat cave. I just didn't build it when I was 13. But we love the action. I think we love the action. I think we love the suspense. I think we love the, the battles, wondering, a little bit wondering who's going to win. I mean, it's kind of fun to watch. But can you imagine a James Bond movie where he was all talk and no action? I mean, think about it. It would be like a James Bond movie with no James Bond. I mean, could you imagine going to the Hunger Games if there was not an actor named Katniss Everdeen? Could you imagine a Star Wars movie with no Jedis? My point is that we go to these movies, we watch these stories because there's got to be the action. There's got to be some kind of an agent who acts, the protagonist. Otherwise... We just, there's no story. I mean, think about if you've read the Bible before or you've heard stories from the Bible before, even the most God-centered miracles involve human agents. People who are involved in the story, who are listening to God. How can we be people like that? That's what I think God is asking for us in the story. So if you've been around, you know we're in this series called Esther, Faith in a Hostile World. If you haven't, hey, we're in a series called Esther, Faith in a Hostile World. And we've looked at how in the very first scenes of this, this uh, story that there's a culture that is really not, um, really not with God. And yet these characters, these people that are God-fearers, choose to and are called to engage their culture, to transform it, to accept some and reject some, and to make a difference in it. And then we see how these characters have had to cultivate a confidence, had to grow in God's providence, grow in God's wisdom, and see him as part of their story. And even when enemies come, we looked at that the next time, when enemies come in, especially enemies that are inside of us, like pride, how we don't have to fight back against pride because that'll just lead to pride. And yet when doubt comes in, we don't have to just sit back. We can actually engage. So we've seen each of these moves in the story, and now we come to this place in the story that I think is called agents. And agents act. And that's what we'll see, what it means to be an agent in God's story as we go to Esther chapter 5. But as you turn to Esther 5, if you have a Bible, um, maybe you're not quite on this whole story with me about agents who act. Here's why I think it's called agents, okay? Agents have purpose. Organizations that hire agents, they don't just hire them, they recruit them. They train them. They send them out on assignments. Agents have purpose. I would say that agents are created, they're made, 
because they're trained and they're recruited and they're sent. So they're these agents that they're made on purpose. In fact, I think they're even made with purpose. And they're made for a purpose. And that's what we see, I think that's what we see in Esther's story here. This kind of pinnacle episode that goes over a couple scenes, and, but it's just really in a in two-day span that we'll see here. And we'll actually see two agents in the story, kind of like we see in the world. There are agents who do good in the world, and there are agents who do evil in the world. They both, they both make, you know, construct brilliant plans. They both take diligent and deliberate steps, but some come to ruin, and others come to success. And as we go to this point in the story, wherever you're at in your life, I would just encourage you to see yourself in the story, to imagine what it would have been like to be one of these people or to be around one of these people and how God might want to use that in your life to speak to you today. So I'm going to start here in Esther 5. Now in Esther 5, you've got to remember that, that there's already been a plot against God's people, and so Esther is this queen. She's our heroine in the story. Her adoptive father has come to her and said, you're in a place where you can do something about this, Esther. And she says, no, I don't think so. God could use someone else. And he says, yeah, God could use someone else. But you're here. You're in this place. In fact, he says these very famous words that maybe, just maybe, God has you in this place for such a time as this. And Esther's reply to her father, her adoptive father, says, I think it says amazing things. Go, gather the Jews. Fast for me for three days. In a, in a story about banquets, through the whole book, she says, fast for me for three days. Deprive yourself of these luxuries so we can seek God. And I will do the same. My attendants will do the same. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even if it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This isn't resignation. This is resolution. This is someone who's leading. This is someone who's instructing. This is a woman who's gone from taking the commands of someone to giving the commands. She, is, she has been moved in her spirit. And so it says on the third day in five, Esther puts on her royal robes and she stands in the inner courts of the palace in front of the king's hall. Now the king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased and he held out his gold scepter to her that was in his hand. So Esther approached and approached him and touched the tip of the scepter. This is what kings do. This is kind of the royal court. If this was a Shakespearean play, this would have to be in the, sh- in the episode, as well as some of the things he says, like this. After she touches the tip of the scepter, the king says, What is it, Queen Esther? What do you want? Even up to half my kingdom, it will be given to you. And she says, If it pleases the king... Let the king, together with Haman, number two in the kingdom, come to a banquet that I have prepared for him. Come today to a banquet. And the king says, bring Haman at once, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet as Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king asked, now what is it you really want? What is your request? It will be given to you, even up to half the kingdom. See how it's the same phrasing. And Esther replies, my petition and request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant me my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to a banquet I have prepared for them, and then I will give you a straight answer. And then I will answer the king's question. See, what I think is going on here is that Esther 
has finally been an agent who accepts her purpose and her place. She accepts where she's at. If you want to be an agent who is acting in God's kingdom, I think we have to follow Esther's lead. We have to be okay with where God has us. And that's what we see with Esther. She realizes that her position of power is not one for comfort or for, for fame or for, lo- um, for being this status symbol, but instead her leadership position is for service. It's for sacrifice. It's for resolution. Can you imagine? I mean, let alone the godly people of the world, but can you imagine if people in leadership saw their role as one of service? and of sacrifice, and of resolution. How companies, how families, how communities would be changed. Esther sees this. She's the one that's going through this huge transformation. So she's like, okay, I'm not going to pursue that. I'm instead going to go and help my people who can't help themselves. She leads, she instructs, she realizes it's way bigger than her, and her beauty and her brains can only get her so far, so she calls on other people for help. Imagine what would happen in your life if you called on other people for help when things got hard. Imagine what would happen. I've seen what can happen when people do it. Families are changed. Friendships are restored. Churches are healed. It's, it's amazing, and that's what exactly what Esther does. She doesn't let the fact that this is way bigger than her stop her. She courageously steps into the uncertainty because she doesn't know what's going to happen. But she doesn't let that stop her. Now, Haman, on the other hand, he's not accepted his purpose. She has, I think she has, from what's happening. But listen to what happens with Haman. Verse 9 of chapter 5. See, Haman went out from the banquet, happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai standing at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Because Haman is in this position where the king has commanded the people to bow down to him because he's in this highly honorable position, but he's not very highly honored because he's kind of, I'll just say, a scumbag. Um, I'm sure God loves him, but he's not the greatest person in the world. And Mordecai, for some reason, does not want to show him respect because he's not very respectable. And he's filled with rage, but he restrains himself and he goes home. So listen to this. He calls together his friends and Zeresh's wife, and he boasts to them about all the ways the king has honored him and elevated him above the other nobles. He's boasting to them about his vast vast wealth. He's boasting to them about his many sons. He's boasting to them about everything he has, all the promotions. And on top of that, he says, the king And the queen invited me, only me, to a banquet, and I get to go to one tomorrow. Sounds like he's pretty full of himself, right? But catch this. But I can't enjoy any of it. Or, as the NIV says, this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Mordecai is like an administrative assistant in the government. It's not like he's competing with Haman for his prime minister spot. It's like Haman is saying, I have all this stuff, but I want more. And when that is your attitude, you can't accept your position or your purpose or your place. Have you ever had one of those Haman moments where 
maybe others can see all the ways that you should feel grateful or all the ways that you should feel blessed and you're just like, ah, I have no satisfaction here. I want more. I, I wish I had that. We see just how bad it is when after the king's sleepless night, which we'll come back to, the king happens to see Haman near him and he says, hey, you know, I want to honor someone. Someone that I forgot to honor and I'd really like to honor him. You know what Haman says? It's over here in chapter 6. Haman thought to himself, verse 6, who would the king rather honor than me? Well, he answers the king right away, I might imagine, or I'd like to say. For the man the king delights to honor, you should have him, king, bring a royal robe that the king has worn and give him a royal horse that the king has ridden and one with a royal crest on its head and then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noblest princes and let there be a ceremony where the man that the king delights to honor would be robed by this prince, would be set up on this horse, and would be paraded through the streets, proclaiming, the prince would be proclaiming, this is what the king does for the person that the king wants to honor. I mean, Haman is already the most powerful person in the kingdom, aside from the king. He's got the king's signet ring, which means he's got his symbol of a power and authority. He can make rules, he can make laws on behalf of the king with that authority, and yet he wants more. He wants the king's robe. He wants the king's horse. I wouldn't be surprised if he wanted the king's throne and his crown and his scepter, because that's the only things he doesn't list. I, I, but I, so part of me wonders, like, would Haman even be happy if he had those things? Because his personal agenda is more. I want more. Now, if you and I are going to be people who are agents in God's mission and in his kingdom, we've got to be people that can see that our purpose has to go below God's purpose and God's mission. We've got to be people that can accept where we're at, even, even if we don't like it. That not only do we have to accept where we're at, but I think that we have to see that God has us there, and he might even want to use us there. That's what happened with Joseph. That's what happens with Esther. That's what happens with Daniel. They, they see that God is with them, even though they don't like the place they're at. That maybe God wants to use the gifts he's given the talents he's given, the experiences that he's given, and the skills he's given, so that you can leverage those things for his good and his glory, and others are blessed. Do you know God gets honored by that? That's how we accept where we're at. That's what Esther seems to be doing, and that's what Haman seems to have a hard time doing. Now, sometimes it's, it's, a little more difficult than that. That's why I think when we're agents who have to act, it's not just simply walking out the door. And, and that's where I get this idea of calculating our plans and our prayers. Agents who act are people that calculate their prayers and their plans. Esther spends three days fasting. I don't know the last time you fast. I've done it a few times. And it can be powerful to hold back from things, especially holding back from food, because it's something that we happen to like eat every day. 
And when we hold back from food, we remind ourselves that, that we don't live just by food alone, but we live by God's presence and God's spirit and God's word. And every time we're hungry, we remind ourselves of that, and then we pray to have the strength to keep going. And Esther's not just praying that she wouldn't um, be hungry. She's praying for wisdom. She's praying for clarity. She's praying for courage. She's thinking to herself and to God, I imagine, what if he pardons my request? What if he does extend the gold scepter? What if he does ask me what I want? Do I know what to say? You know, when I meet with people who are sometimes confused about the place they're at, and I got this from someone way smarter than me a lot of years ago. If you had a magic wand and you could have whatever you want, what would it be? I remember the first time one of my mentors asked me that. I'm like, Mark, I have no idea. And he said, well, you know, we do have a God of the universe who can do anything. So if he could do anything for you, what would you want? It took me days to answer that question. I'd never been able to really fathom that, that th and I'm not saying that God's a genie, but that we could really dream and ask for anything, especially if it's focused on his honor and others' good. Now, sometimes we don't get our prayers answered because it's focused on us. We're, we're asking selfishly, James says. But I don't think that Esther is asking those. And I think when we fast and pray, we are saying to God, you matter more than food to me. And, and you matter, and your glory matters more than my desires. That's what I think Esther is doing when she's calculating these prayers and when she's calculating these plans. Now, Haman, on the other hand, he's calculating for destruction. When he sees in, in chapter 6 here, when he sees that, or chapter 5, when he sees that Mordecai doesn't bow down to him, and he goes home and he brags to his, his friends and his wife, they're like, well, why don't you build a gallows? This is like a 75-foot a pole that could hang there, and, and then literally Haman's, or Mordecai's body could hang near our house so that everyone in the city could see it and know that you do not defy Haman. I mean, it's, it's vulgar, it's, it's murderous, and it's what Haman is focused on. His prayers and, and plans are for destruction. Mordecai and Esther's plans are for restoration. So she prays and she prays. And as she's doing this, she is thinking, how can I leverage what I have for God that God has given me to bless others, to honor God? And, and this, these prayers and plans, they go from dreams to resolution. Because that's what we do when we're agents. We just don't accept where we're at. We just don't calculate plans. We then take deliberate steps. Agents act there would be no James Bond movie if there wasn't a James Bond. We have to move, and that's what happens with Esther. And, and I want you to understand, this is more for me too, I want you to understand that we're getting a God's eye view of the story. Esther doesn't know what's going to happen. When she makes the first banquet, she's thinking, well, the personal agenda of the king is me, like him. He loves to be the guest of honor. So if I give him a banquet, he gets a party, he gets wine, he gets the focus on himself. I'll give him a banquet. I won't just ask for what I need. And you know what? I'm going to give him a second banquet to show him again how important it is for him. She doesn't know the king has a dream. That's what we see in the story. That in between the two banquets, the king just happens to have a sleepless night. And what does the king do when they have a sleepless night? Well, they ask someone to read to them. 
And what is he asked to have read to him? A book about himself. Because his agenda is about me. But Esther doesn't know that. Esther might not even know that Mordecai has been rewarded that morning. As she's cooking in the kitchen, or probably more aptly, having her servants cook in the kitchen, she's watching a gallow be constructed, this hanging pole, by Haman's house. I can only imagine the tension that she's feeling, but she doesn't let the uncertainty stop her. Oh, man, as this week, as I was going over this text, I just kept thinking to myself, God, why does uncertainty stop me so often? When I don't know what's going to happen, I'm afraid to act. Well, we see in this story that Esther is not afraid to act. She knows that even if she fails, she did all she could. That, that her eternal security is not based on her performance. That the love that God has for her is not based on what she does. And I think that gives her freedom. In fact, it gives her a resolution. The holding back and fasting has resolved in this plan, and she goes forward with it. And I want you to just hear, because she doesn't know that the king has said, had this sleepless night. She doesn't know that the king has, has woken up in the middle of the night and just happened to be on this 12 years of book, and it's Mordecai's story that gets answered. She doesn't even know, I think, that, that Haman has had the humiliation in chapter 6 of, of having to walk through the streets and proclaim Mordecai being honored and his downfall being predicted. But go to chapter 7. They go to this banquet. And again, in King's speak, it's, I'm having a good day. I'm feeling kind of generous. What do you want? I mean, the exact words are, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Now, We've already heard this happen two or three times in the story. So how many things is he willing to grant right now? What is your petition, Esther? It will be given to you. What is your request, even up to half the kingdom? She says the first time, my petition and request is this, come to a banquet. But listen to her deliberate steps this time, her deliberate action this time, the planning that she's had, that she's not just a beautiful woman, that she's got brains, she's spent time with God. She says, oh, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life, this is my petition, and save my people, this is my request. See how she turned one petition, this one thing that the king offers into two things? He wasn't doing that. That was, that was Esther spending time with God, realizing how, hey, because of, because of the ways that the Persians talk, because of the ways the king asked these things, they really mean it as one, but it's two. I'm going to give two. I'm going to say, save my people. Spare my life. And the king is like, what, what are you talking about? And what? No, an enemy, an adversary is plotting against destroying my people. No, who would do this? It's that enemy, that adversary, that vile Haman. And the king erupts. He gets so mad, he leaves his wine, and I'm assuming it's good wine. And he goes out to the palace, and he's, he's walking out in the garden. I mean, this is a man that I put in a position of power. I, put, I mean, he's been here for years, and he's been plotting against me? I can't believe it. He would go against my queen? 
I, I can't believe it. I've trusted this person. Maybe I'm kind of an idiot. Maybe I listen to too many, I get too much bad advice. I don't know if he's actually saying that. But when he walks back in, he sees Haman who realizes like, I'm done for, I have to beg for mercy. And he happens to fall on top of Queen Esther as she's reclining on the couch because that's how they eat. And what does the king say? Dude, you would even try and grow my wife even as I find this out about you and it's over for Haman. And we see the reversal start. We'll see that Esther's life is spared and next week we'll see if the people's lives can be spared. But today, I want you to think about the fact that Esther was not afraid to act. Even though it was uncertain. She spent that, she accepted the place that she was at, that it wasn't about her and her agenda, but it was for God's glory, for others' good. She calculated the prayers and the plans by spending time with God, by asking others for help, by using what God had given her to leverage it for him, and it resulted in a beautiful, glorious thing. What if we thought about our lives that way? What if we were people who, who leveraged what God has given us, our skills, our talents, even, even our experiences that we might not like? What if, we got, what if we thought, I can leverage those for God's glory. I can leverage those for other goods. Think about what would happen. You wouldn't just be an agent who act. You would be able to step confidently into God's uncertainty because God knows the future. You would be able to be a person who engages with your family even after you've, had, you've gotten chewed up in a dog-eat-dog job. You'd be able to engage with those people that you love. If you could do this, you would jump into ministry passions regardless of the amount of time it would take and if you got paid or not because you see how God has gifted you and you want to make a difference. I think you would jump into rebuilding a marriage even if it's in ruins. That's what agents that would act would do. They would, they would forgive friends even when they've let them down. They pray for bosses and teachers and leaders even if they've made mistakes. I think the world would slowly be transformed. Now, how do you know when to act? Well, I think like this story, the circumstances just line up. Like, a few months ago, we were, I was invited to a meeting for the district called 196. It's a school district that is all of Apple Valley, Rosemont, and Egan, plus a little bit of Invergrove Heights, a little bit of Burnsville, and a little bit of Lakeville. And the superintendent invited all the, all the pastors of these communities, plus all the school counselors, plus all the principals of the elementary schools and middle schools and presented this idea that there's a food insecurity amongst thousands and thousands of our kids, actually tens of thousands of our kids. And this has never been done before. Over a hundred people from all these different walks of life by a secular organization were brought together to say, could we do something about this? I brought this idea back to our outreach team and at the time we were doing our food on the first for Westview. We were doing a mobile pantry for the people in the community. And, and we had um, a really small outreach team who was already focused on some stuff. And they're just like, I don't think we can do this. Maybe someone else will. So I brought that back to the team. Then we started this 90-day tithe challenge in the end of May, beginning of June time frame. And the schools sent out surveys. In August, it comes back that 
that 50 students from, or they project 50 students from Westview Elementary School need, are going to sign up. They need food. And I come back to our outreach team because our mobile pantry, uh, although it was very dignified, um, we decided to stop that partnership because they have found that their bus system of food delivery works best in high-density areas. And even though we were right next to a food desert, it's called, that it was just too much work to get people to walk over. And so we're like, well, we have this space, and what would it mean to do this? And we're like, oh, I just, I just don't know if we can do this. So we were like, mm, you know, we just have to wait. We're not sure we can do this. So, by the way, how many people have signed up? And they're like, well, I think 50, and this other church picked up 40 of them. So, oh, awesome. Yay, God. And a month later, three weeks ago, the school and the organization came back to me, came back to restoration and said, 74 kids signed up. We've got 40 covered. Could you do 34? I brought it to our outreach team, and they said, this, I, I don't think we can pass this up, but it's, it's money that we would need to give first. We can volunteer later, but it's money that we would need to give first. So for two weeks, our leadership team prayed about it, we talked about it, and we said, wait a second. You know what? We did this 90-day tithe challenge, and we've got half the money that's going to, I think we even have a slide for it, half the money that's going like out, out regionally, nationally, and internationally. And um, so... With regionally, we were able to help be a part of starting two new churches. They're not even on our conference website yet because they're so new. But Matt and Dale are great people. They're doing amazing things. Dale actually is using this organization called the Sheridan Story as one of their outreach partners already. So we, we've been, Dale and I have been talking about this, this model. Nationally, we've been, we put money, a third of that money, towards starting and strengthening churches to start new leaders, or start new mission projects as well. And then internationally, we have a church planter who's in Brooklyn Park, whose name is Sudin, who's from Laos, and he's been a pastor, he started as a pastor in a concentration camp in Laos. Every convert of over a thousand are from Buddhism. He starts a little church in Brooklyn Park, every convert is from Buddhism. And after 10 years, he's been training up a, a pastor for two years. And he feels called to go back as a missionary to his home country. And we were able to give him some of that money internationally. So locally, we have about 3000 a little more than $3,000 that we said, this is going to be for local outreach. Well, it's, it's not quite enough to cover all these people, which is why we have a little envelope in your worship folder. Because some of you give to that tithe challenge and give to our general offering faithfully, and this is why we do it. It's not just to cover rental expenses or buildings or staff. It's to, it's to bless the community. We want to be a church that would be missed if we weren't here. And so our leadership team said, why would we not do this? Why would we not be agents who act? You're invited to be part of that. If you want to put a check in today, we're not going to do special offerings all the time. But in this moment, at this time, we thought, man, we're so close to being able to cover all those kids to have a weekend meal every, every weekend for the rest of the school year. And if we get more than that, then we, we can fund those 34 kids or maybe even more next year. We won't stop talking about it, but for today, I just want us to see sometimes the circumstances line up. 
When does a secular organization ask a church three times to help? Friends, that just doesn't happen. They know we care about Westview because we're still doing food on the first all the time. They know we care. We pray for them. We volunteer for them. So they asked. I think, how could we not? Because sometimes you just got to be an agent who acts. We're going to post a story about the Sheridan story on social media. I'm not going to take time in the service right now for it. But I just want you to consider that it's not really about Sheridan's story. And it's not really about our personal missions in the world, for even for God. It's about God's greater, bigger rescue mission. I mean, the one character in the story that we haven't talked about at all is God. I mean, think about it. He's all over this story. Just like I think he's in the midst of the terror and the destruction in Paris, and he's in the midst of those kids at Westview that don't know if they're going to get a meal over the weekends. He's in the hard stuff. He's in this story. Who else, think about it, who else could have orchestrated all the events that led Esther to be queen? Who else could have put Mordecai at just the right time, at just the right place, to see and stop the assassination plot on the king? God, who else could have been the one that kept the king up for a sleepless night? Who else could have been the one over 12 years of the king's exploits and the king's reign just happened to go to the story in his book that just happened to talk about Mordecai saving the king? And who else could have brought Haman just at the time that the king was like, hey, I didn't honor him. I haven't thought about that. Who else could have, even in the midst of destruction, when Haman's rolling the purr, casting the lots, deciding the day, could have put it almost 12 months away so that these people would have had time to pray and to plan and to act. This is the God of the universe. This is the God that's in that story This is the God in your story. And this is the God who sends Jesus to our earth. Think about it. Esther became beautiful so she could approach the king to plead for her people. Jesus became ordinary and left the king's presence. The heavenly king of the universe. Esther goes and stands and pleads with the king to save her tribe. And Jesus... He falls and he bleeds to save his world. This is our God. See, in Esther, yes, we find an agent who acts, and I want you to be an agent who acts. I want myself to be an agent who acts. But I want you to see that in Jesus, we find a God who saves. Do you live every day knowing that there is a Jesus who saves you every day, who's making things new and who asks you to come and follow him so others would know him and so the world will be blessed. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for, again, this story, God, that it's more than a story. It's, it's a way for us to see how you work and who you are and how you care, even when you're hard to find. And I pray, God, today for those who are having a hard time seeing where you're at, who might even be having a hard time 
knowing who you are because of where they are. And I pray that your peace and your presence will be so close to each person right now. God, for those who think, why me? I don't have anything to offer. I'm just ordinary. God, I pray that you would whisper to them about the gifts that you've given, about the skills that you're developing, about even the experiences that each have had. God, that you see them as someone who can make a difference in your kingdom, that you would smile when others are blessed and when you receive the glory, and that that would empower us to not stand on the sidelines, but to act for you. Amen.